as people, as humans or teams of people, organizations made up of people, um, by the time that we've gone through something difficult, we will be different. Um, and the world itself is moving quite quickly. So it would be hard to go back to where we were previously. But it also would be a waste of adversity. Um, why go through something particularly uncomfortable or difficult and not have learned something from it or have new strengths? And welcome to a new episode of the Role Models Podcast, a podcast where we host candid conversations with inspiring women about their personal journeys, their career histories, and all the valuable lessons and learnings they've picked up along the way. My name is David Noel, and I'm one of the two co-founders of Role Models, the series of events and this very podcast that I started with my friend and co-founder Isabel. You might have noticed this quick break that we did with this podcast before this episode came out, and this is because we launched the Role Models podcast in German. And this week, we're back with a new episode of the English-speaking podcast, and I'm excited to be sharing this episode with you. Resilience is a topic that has come up quite a few times recently on this podcast, and that's why I was really excited to speak with today's guest. Ama Marston is the author of a book called Type R, Transformative Resilience for Thriving in a Turbulent World. And it's a book for people who want to know more about how they can live and work better and be more thoughtful by turning difficult situations into opportunities for growth. Ama and I speak about a range of topics that all revolve around the concept of resilience And in our conversation, she draws from the vast research that she has conducted in the area. Like, for example, she defines resilience and what she means with transformative resilience. She speaks about what she calls type R and what the characteristics are of someone who demonstrated these type R characteristics. She also talks about type R mindset and how we can turn this mindset into action when faced with a crisis. One of the things I loved about Amar's book in our conversation is that she says that adversity is a terrible thing to waste. And I really agree with that. And I enjoyed learning more about ways on how we can make use of a crisis or adversity. Big thanks to our patrons who support this podcast. Megan Quinn is a general partner at Spark Capital, and she supports the organization Code2040.org. And we have Anna Carolina, who is a coach based out of Berlin, And you can learn more about Anna's work on truthcircles.com. One final thing, if you would like to support this podcast, why not share this episode on Instagram stories? We recently saw people sharing uh, links to the podcast on uh, Instagram stories, and it's been a really interesting way to engage with you all. So thanks for sharing this podcast. Thanks for sharing the link with your friends. Thank you for rating it on iTunes. And here we go. This is the Role Models Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is episode number 34. And this is our guest, Ama Marston. All right. Uh, I have today uh, with us uh, an author of a book uh, about a topic that um, has been coming up quite a bit uh, on the Role Models Podcast in previous episodes. So I'm really happy that we get to sit down with somebody who spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of attention around this topic, and that's Ama Marston. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I mentioned the topic of the book. Do you want to uh, share with the community, with the Romas community, what your book is about? Sure. Um, so the book is called Type R, Transformative Resilience for Thriving in a Turbulent World. Um, I will explain what that means in, in a little bit. But um, essentially, the book revolves around the topic of resilience, but taking the conversation further than um, the ways in which we've previously thought about resilience, um, looking at, at it in broader context but also reframing the ways that we talk about um, adversity and how we use them in our lives um, to our advantage. So um, where you often hear a lot about resilience, this is actually about transformative resilience and moving away from the notion of bouncing back, which you hear so frequently, and instead um, focusing on growth. And type R um, 
if you have heard of type A and type B people, we're kind of playing off of that um, with type R's being the resilient individuals, leaders, uh, businesses, or even communities that are turning challenges into um, opportunities for learning, growth, innova- uh, innovation, etc. So um, that's roughly what the book is about. Um, and I think probably dovetails nicely with some of what your listeners are talking about, thinking about, and maybe what some of your guests have um, been talking about. So, Amma, you wrote the book, uh, you co-authored the book together with your mother, correct? Yeah, um, which is an interesting story about how that came to be. It definitely is not what I would have thought I would be doing with my career had you asked me 10 years back. Um, And yet it's been a fantastic opportunity. And I think that collaboration is what has made this new thinking so possible because she and I have such different backgrounds and different ways of thinking. Um, So my mom is at this point a veteran psychotherapist, having been in the field for over 30 years, um, being a clinical advisor, but also an advisor to corporates um, on things like stress, work-life balance. Um, And then my own background is in issues around strategy development, leadership development, um, but also a lot of the big international and national challenges that um, we're seeing such turbulence in the world today. So by she and I collaborating, we're kind of bridging the personal and the professional, you know, the local and the global. So Amma, you mentioned that uh, you you have different backgrounds, uh, both your mother and yourself. How did you, can you describe to our audience um, how you picked uh, or the, the process of coming up with the, uh, the theme of resilience and that eventually led to the uh, publication, the writing and the publication of a book? Like, how did this, how did this book uh, come to be? Well, um, several years ago, my mom and I were working as um, entrepreneurs in parallel to one another, having started our own businesses. Uh, And we were going through the difficulties of facing the financial crisis and the aftermath of the financial crisis as small business owners. Um, There was a horrible accident in my family. My father was really badly hurt. Um, So I was grappling with that and trying to help take care of him. Um, I also was facing increasing immigration pressures as an American um, living here long term in the UK. So there were all of these mounting pressures um, in my life, as well as in my mom's life as she built her own business. And as a mother and daughter that are very close, we were... um, kind of supporting one another and having conversations about um, increasingly not only what was taking place in our lives, but what we were seeing taking place in the lives of our clients, um, our allies, our colleagues, people inside corporations, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, families and friends. And everybody was essentially under increasing amounts of pressure. And it wasn't just in people's personal lives. Work was increasingly a huge source of stress and also disruption for people. But then there are all of these big picture um, challenges going on, like how do we deal with climate change and the disruptions it's causing or the financial crisis itself, which these are big picture issues, but they become personal very quickly, right? Um, In our case, we were grappling with the financial crisis as small business owners. So, you know, we really wanted to bridge conversations that have traditionally been taking place in very narrow ways. Um, So a lot of previous resilience conversations have either been around the individual and very psychology focused or sometimes self-help focused. And then there have been pieces of research around the macroeconomic picture or the big picture of like, how does an economy um, recover after a financial crisis or big storms? And yet um, as people and as businesses or groups of people, we face all of those things. Um, So we're feeling pressures from all these different ways. And in particular, uh, younger people, I I don't know how old you are, but I'm a Gen Xer. um, And my generation gets called the sandwich generation because a lot of people have young kids at home, um, elderly parents or parents that are aging, 
Um, you know, we've gone through loss of jobs around things like September 11th and the financial crisis. And so, you know, part of also what we wanted to contribute was looking at how the world is changing and the kinds of pressures that um, we face are changing and are different than when my mom's generation was this age. Um, and so the the ways in which we've talked about resilience or adversity don't um, the the past ways of talking about them need to evolve with our evolving world, and we also need new tools. Um, and just one final word to say that um, my mom and I were actually uh, along actually with my father were in a horrible car accident when I was three, and my mom broke her back in both legs and was almost paralyzed for life and had to learn to rewalk. Um, and you know so. In some ways, it wasn't until a few years ago that we came to this idea of collaborating. But in many respects, our whole lives together have been a process of learning about resilience, of you know, transforming adversity into um, you know, new strengths, growth, and um, you know, figuring things out together as a family. Who did you have in mind when you started writing the book? Who did we have in mind? Um, well, I think I touched on it a little bit already, which is um, professionals probably like you and I who are grappling with so many of these different kinds of pressures um, in our personal lives at work. And again, that could be whether you're employed by somebody else, whether you're starting your own business, even if, for instance, you're a mom that's taking time out from work um, and we'll come back later. But Essentially, you know, people say from 25 to however old, I don't want to limit it in terms of age, but it really was focused towards the growing number of people that are questioning how we can live and work better and also be more um, thoughtful about the way in which we live in this world. And, you know, people that are looking for good new information and tools about how to do that better and how to lead better. Can you can you help us understand how you define uh, resilience uh, for yourself, or maybe how you your approach on defining it uh, through the book? Sure. So as I mentioned before, what we're talking about is transformative resilience. Um, so resilience in the past had well, actually, it originates, as I understand it, from engineering. And this notion of taking uh, metal and seeing if you can bend metal and then have it return to its former state. Um, so in that instance, going back to its former state makes more sense. But the reality is that as people, as humans or teams of people, organizations made up of people, um, by the time that we've gone through something difficult, we will be different. Um, and the world itself is moving quite quickly. So it would be hard to go back to where we were previously. But it also would be a waste of adversity. Um, why go through something particularly uncomfortable or difficult and not have learned something from it or have new strengths? So, um, You know, as I said before, where there's all this talk about resilience as a notion of bouncing back, and you hear people say that or wanting to, quote unquote, get back to normal, what we're saying is it often isn't even possible, but also not preferable because it's a waste of adversity and an opportunity to learn and build new strengths and to innovate. So yeah. that's really where the difference lies. I really love that. And it's a, it's a quote from the book where you say, and you already mentioned it uh, just now, is that you, that you write that, quote, adversity is a terrible thing to waste, which I really like. It's just a different perspective to looking at adversity and um, and, and the way how we deal with uh, with adversity. So, you, so you're proposing and suggesting, suggesting a different uh, way to look at adversity or to reframe adversity. How, 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 do, you, um, how do you reframe it? Well, one of the key things uh, for being able to do so is understanding our starting point, um, probably as individuals and then as groups of people or as leaders. Um, but we all have default ways of thinking and behaving. Um, and a lot of that is framed by mindset. 
So um, when something difficult happens, what is our default way of thinking? Do we automatically catastrophize and say, oh, God, this is really a disaster. It's the end of everything. Or are we able to say, okay, um, this is really hard. And there's also an opportunity for something good to come out of this. Even though I would have never wished for this situation, it is what's happened. So where do I go with this? And so a lot of it starts with mindset. Um, and it can be particularly difficult to understand your own mindset in the current moment and in the midst of a crisis or something difficult. So um, a lot of what we talk about together, my mom and I, is um, looking back when you have some remove from a certain situation, being able to ask yourself, okay, when this situation happened, let's say when I lost a job, um, as, as I did early in my career, um, I, uh, had worked for an organization that was restructured. And so my job was, um, done away with her. I was made redundant. So if I were to try and figure out my own default mindset, I could look back to that, which is now years ago and say, okay, I lost that job. Did I suddenly freak out and feel that this was a disaster and, um, you know, that it was going to be the end of my career or, you know, what did I think about that? And, and even if I did see it negatively, was I able to quickly shift and find some positive in it? So looking to the past can help us understand, um, some of our default behaviors and then bring that knowledge into the future and a certain awareness of how we respond and start to try and do things differently bit by bit when we face adversity in the current day. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And um, so my, my follow-up question on, on the, on the mindset, uh, piece would be, um, have you, so you, you, you shared that uh, an example of of, um, of losing a job and and to go back and and look at the situation and how you dealt with it and to take a step back um, and to look at it differently. So changing changing your mindset about it. Do you have some tips that you could share um, with our listeners for um, how to activate that mindset uh, in the situation the, uh, in the adverse adversity situation? Uh, as compared to um, reflecting on it later on uh, with with having taken some some distance to it, is there a way to remember how to activate that mindset while you're in the situation that uh, that you can define as adversity? Well, the the point of looking back is to then have some awareness tucked away so that when something difficult happens today, you can kind of ask yourself, okay, what are my tendencies? Um, if your tendency is not one to automatically reframe and see something positive, then you know that that's your starting point and that if you sink into something like a negative outlook or feeling blocked by the current situation, that you can say, all right, um, how could I do things differently? You know, what can I learn from this? So there's a series of questions that we can ask ourselves, like, am I defaulting to old ways of seeing things? Or am I defaulting to stories that I have heard or things that I've learned through my family, or through the culture I grew up in? Um, so for instance, we are often very shaped by our families and that ends up coming to work with us or coming to, um, the way in which we reflect on politics or, or the larger world or our own lives. So that's also another thing we can do is like, okay, is this me speaking here or is this something that I've been told over the years of like, Hey, you know, you've got what you've got. If things go wrong, you just got to suck it up. Or were you taught hey, you know, this is really uncomfortable, but you always have the possibility to make something new out of it. So understanding those storylines and reflecting on them, even in the current day, can be really helpful. Um, you know, again, asking questions like, what can I do differently than I normally would as my default? Um, are there other people that I see around me who have been through something like this? Uh, and again, it's not just individuals. It could be that your business is going through something and you're saying, okay, another business experienced this. Uh, were they able to do something to reframe um, positively that I could emulate? 
so a lot of it really does require reflection, which can be difficult in the moment of crisis. And that is where um, being able to leverage the support and the perspectives of others can be really helpful because we can have tunnel vision, especially if we're scared or angry or feel, you know, feel badly that we've failed at something or feel at a loss. Like if we've lost a loved one or a project that really reflected our identity. Um, so that's some of the ways in which people can start working on this. And you call that, you call that transformative resilience, which is, which is, uh, taking it a step uh, beyond the traditional way that we think about resilience. Can you talk about how you came up with the term and what it means? Sure. Um, so in terms of a process of the research that we did, um, we really wanted to draw on a whole bunch of different disciplines um, to understand, one, the disruptive world that we live in and the amount of increasing crises that we face, but also look at the evidence base for growth from adversity rather than bouncing back. And so we mapped out research across a number of different disciplines. Um, we got into total nerd mode um, <laughs> and mapped it out, you know, of like this is what happens in uh, the natural sciences. This is what is being said in psychology. Um, this is what's being said in international affairs and politics, the business world. And so we were really looking at um, overlapping themes and trends that um, pointed to whether it really was that we bounce back um, or whether it really is about growth. So finding the evidence base, as well as looking at um, my mom's 30 plus years of um psychotherapy experience, my decades of experience, uh, as I said, with uh, international relations issues and working with leaders and teams. Um, so it really was an iterative process of looking at where the evidence was, um, reflecting on our own personal experiences that I told you about, uh, the experiences of the increasing numbers of people we were talking to in, in our lives, but also starting to interview for this process, and then mapping out um, where there was compelling research and, and evidence. Um, and that really pointed to kind of evolution from adversity, uh, rather than going back. And that's not to say that Every difficult circumstance um, will lead to transformative resilience, but um, there certainly is the potential for it based on the decisions that we make um, or in cases, for instance, of something like a natural disaster, the way in which policymakers address it, the resources put towards um, addressing it and transforming the circumstances. Does that answer your question? Yes. So, so in the book, you you um, you you write that that transformative resilience. Um, you 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 label it as a capacity, which I really liked because to me this sounds then that it's something that you can uh, acquire as a skill or that you can uh, you can learn how to do. Um, what is then typically something that stands uh, in the way of being able? to use adversity and change um, as a, uh, in, in favor of a positive transformation? Mm -hmm. Well, there's really interesting research that's been done around things like mindset, um, since we talked about mindset as a starting point. And again, that can be an individual's mindset, uh, the collective mindset of a team of people, of a whole organization, um, or even a nation, uh, because we do actually have all sorts of messages that we are fed through the news or through our leaders' statements that um, help create a collective mindset in that respect as well. Um, so I got excited there. <laughs> Can you repeat where we were? <laughs> yeah. The, 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 so so the the uh, I really like that you that you label. Um, Transform, transformative resilience is a capacity and that uh, uh, right. that something stands might be standing in a way of, of becoming or using adversity and change to transform uh, positively. Yeah, so the um, thanks for helping me there. I got it, you know, very <laughs> no excited worry. about all the ways in which this shows up. Um, so thanks for getting me back on track. Uh, but yeah, so coming back to mindset, it one of the barriers to transformative resilience can really be fixed uh, thinking or a fixed mindset, which is 
look, you're dealt the hand that you're dealt. You have all of the abilities you're ever going to have. So if something bad happens, that's it. You just have to deal with it. But you might be stumped by it because you have a limited ability um, or a limited capacity. And what we're saying is actually this closely links to um, research done at Stanford um, by a woman whose last name is Dweck. I'm forgetting her first name, but it, it's quite well known now, um, which is this core belief that we can continue to learn and grow. And so we're taking that with the type R mindset a step further, which is that it's about um, how we can continue to learn and grow in the face of adversity, um, along with other types of research. But if we're really fixed in this notion that, you know, we've got limited capacity, that you're either resilient or you're not, it's going to be really hard to transform your situation and to see things differently. Um but also we get very stuck in thinking about there being one correct answer. Um, and in the book, there's this research that I found that was so fascinating because this one scientist was so dedicated to finding a way to treat um, stomach ulcers. And all of the existing um, knowledge about that was, I think, essentially that it was to do with hot foods, you know, spicy foods and acids and what have you. And so he really was going up against the status quo with some new ideas. And he couldn't get people to come along for the ride and, you know, take the intellectual leap with him. And so he spent, I think, a decade trying to prove new ways of thinking. And he essentially gave himself an ulcer by putting together this viral soup or something, you know, like a biological cocktail and showing that stomach ulcers can come from viral infections or bacterial infections by doing it to himself because he just couldn't get people to listen. And in time, I believe he may have won the Nobel Prize. Don't quote me on that. Um, but, you know, he became widely recognized, as did his research, and it helped the thinking about this condition evolve and therefore medicine and treatment evolve. But for the longest time, there was this view of um, this is the right answer. This is the only way of viewing this. And so it really stumped uh, the ability for growth and an evolution of thinking. So coming back to our research and, and transformative resilience, we have to be able to be flexible, inquisitive thinkers um, to be able to reframe, um, see new possibilities coming out of the problems uh, that we face or the more kind of metaphorical illnesses as opposed to the very um, real illnesses of a stomach ulcer. So you mentioned earlier that that we um, you've said it a few times that we you know we live in in a time that um, where we could say that almost the the only constant that we have is change, and that that rapid change is even uh, becoming even more rapid and it's driven by you know a lot of um, uh, changes in the technology world, industries that are being disrupted, um, the. Uh, globalization uh, that there's a high degree of uncertainty in certain areas that there's um, you know new threats uh, um, that we have to deal with uh, that we we hadn't seen before so it almost sounds like uh, like the the need the necessity to adapt or or to predict uh, what's going to happen is is increasing um, and getting even faster uh, the more we move through time and I remember um, seeing a quote, uh, you know, you and I work working in, in organizations, uh, we work with leaders, we work with, uh, with, uh, with people in fast changing uh, organizations. And I remember seeing a quote where somebody said, and I can't, I, f I forgot who, who said it, or who, 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 uh, who said the quote, but that's uh, adaptability is becoming a strat strategic uh, competency in organizations that is almost like um, the time when went from strategy to culture and now culture is becoming, uh, you know, eating strategy for breakfast. And now uh, I keep uh, hearing more and more that uh, being able to adapt to the change faster is becoming a strategic asset uh, within organizations. Can you talk, um, and that requires a bit of a, of a certain type of, 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 uh, of, of person and you call it type R. Can you help us a bit understand 
what you mean with type A or what is generally known as type A, type B, and then how type R fits into that. Sure. So in a way, we're playing with this notion um, because type A's and type B's are personalities um, and are, you know, very fixed to individuals. Um, What we're talking about links to that, but is not a personality type, in part because we're saying that this can be learned behavior. But really, type R is a mindset, a skill set and an identity Um, And I say that last part in that you can identify as a type R person, a type R team or leader or a type R business. Um, So I want to be sure that we don't put a misnomer on type R and call it a personality, um, though it does apply to individuals. Um, But you're talking about really one of our key skills in that skill set being adaptability, Um, And that links to other key type R characteristics. So, um, you know, we see kind of an umbrella of skills in this skill set or, you know, some common characteristics that come together to make up type R's. That's adaptability, um, finding a healthy relationship to control, continual learning, having a deeper sense of purpose, leveraging support and actively engaging. Um, so as an individual or a leader or a business, we may not have all of these characteristics or skills in equal measure, um, or we may have a number of them, but not all of them yet. Uh, so it's not a fixed thing where you have to have all of these a hundred percent, you know, it's an ongoing process of evolution, but, um, adaptability certainly is more and more important, um, given how fast the world is changing And the fact that rigid behavior um, really leaves us stuck in past ways of thinking. And there's actually interesting research coming out of uh, laboratories with mice that points to what this could look like for individuals, but I also think gives us lessons for organizations or the broader world. So what these researchers have done is they have taken mice and they've put them in a maze and given them a little snack at the end, let's say some cheese or something. And what the researchers are trying to do is um, initially get the mice, um, differentiate the mice that use rote memorization to get themselves through the maze and those that respond to cues um, and changes. And I believe that they've been monitoring it through some kind of um, brainwave activity. And so what they found was essentially that the mice that rely on rigid behavior and rote memorization are not able to adapt and successfully make it to the end of the maze, or at least in any reasonable amount of time, when that maze is changed. Because they're still going on the past reality that they knew and still trying to make that work, despite the fact that there is now a wall where there used to be a doorway or what have you. In um, comparison, the mice that are taking cues from their surrounding environment and kind of putting that into a feedback loop and learning from it and um pivoting or shifting their behavior in response to those cues understandably do make it to the end of the maze um, because they're going, Hey, okay, there's a wall here. Uh, used to be a door, but that's not going to work. What else, you know, how can I sniff around? What else um, can I find here? So, you know, again, it's one piece of laboratory research, but I think it's very interesting in the ways in which it speaks to how we can get stuck in outdated ways of thinking or um, past knowledge of the world and try to make that work today when it just doesn't. And we can keep pushing and pushing at it. Um, And I think this is an interesting place where, for instance, grit can be really important and certainly is closely linked to resilience, but often grit isn't enough. Um, You can't just keep doing the same thing and doing the same thing and persisting in ways that aren't going to work in the face of new realities. Um, So if you were to link that to mice and that uh, piece of research that I just talked about, you know, those mice that are um, drawing on their knowledge from the past could keep persisting and keep persisting, trying to get through a barrier, but that barrier is still going to be there. So having grit in that instance, isn't going to get them, um, to the finish line. 
I liked how you described the notion of type R as a combination of mindset, skill set, and identity. And and then you listed, uh, you spoke about the six six different characteristics that make up the notion of type R. Uh, you also said that it's uh, the point is not to uh, fulfill all of these six characteristics 100%. That, do you have, for people who want to understand better those characteristics and maybe how to uh, to focus on them, is there, have you found um, one or two or three uh, of those characteristics to have um, a higher degree of uh, importance uh, or influence overall to um to uh, you know to acquire transformer transformative resilience i don't want to um, say that there's a hierarchy because honestly all of these characteristics or skills are important in different ways mm -hmm. some may be more important in certain contexts than others or maybe more important to certain people or teams depending on who they are or the circumstances that they faced um But what's interesting is that through this work, finding a healthy relationship to control is one characteristic that comes up quite a lot and is closely tied to adaptability, but also our ability to continue to learn. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's more important than others, but I certainly think it is a skill or a characteristic that a lot of us struggle with in the face of such uncertainty. I think part of that is cultural, um, at least in the U.S. where I primarily grew up. It's really associated with a positive thing, like being in control, you know, mm -hmm. um, and especially for women in leadership, since this is a podcast that uh, tries to encourage women's leadership and acknowledge women's leadership. That whole notion of being in control is also a double-edged sword for women in particular, um, of how much to to show that you've got things in your grasp, um, but then how much that can be a detriment and you can be judged for it uh, with double standards. So what does a healthy relationship to control mean and why is it so important? Well, on one hand, we have to have some ability to influence the basics in our lives or the circumstances that we face. Again, whether we're an individual, a team, an organization, um, otherwise, we won't bother to engage or try. You know, it'll feel pointless. Um, and early on in my career, I worked in developing countries. And you see this a lot in a poverty context or even in poverty in, you know, say, London, where I live, um, where people who are really disempowered have no control. They can't influence those basic elements of their lives. So on one hand, you have to have some level of control to be able to influence what happens around you, especially in the face of difficulties. And having some sense of control um, reduces our anxiety. It reduces stress around what we're facing. At the same time, a lot of us, particularly in the West, tend more towards overarching and trying to overexert control over things that we're just never going to be able to have control over. And that certainly um, seems to be the case for things like financial crisis or climate change, you know, in the long run, we can influence those things by making good collective choices and putting good policies in place. But, you know, in the here and now, spinning your wheels about that, um, in many respects, is not going to change that. Or often we can't control other people's behavior. And so, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, so there's something called an internal locus of control or a locus of control. And You know, I'll just tell you a little bit more, um, and then other people can can take a look, hopefully at the book or elsewhere. But there's this notion of: Do you believe that the things that take place in the world are done to you outside of your control? So mm -hmm. the control is in the outside world, or do you believe that all the control and therefore all the responsibility lies with you um, to make anything positive happen, or to have success, or um, and so most people find some kind of balance. They're not at one extreme or the other, but um, either of those extremes can be a weight on us as people, as teams, um, either because we're putting too much pressure on ourselves or we feel too disempowered and that it's just the outside world that um, will kind of do to us or, you know, define our circumstances. 
Yeah, I like that because it's something that I've been um, I've been using more and more for myself as well. Is the idea of uh, is it within my control or outside of my control? And um, and I found that it's a it's a great question to ask myself whenever I feel stressed to, mm-hmm. to not become a victim of stress and to not let uh, or just this this uh, vagueness of the term stress. Not mm-hmm. be, not being able to pinpoint uh, the, the the actual stressor um, is is one thing, but then the other that I found super useful is to to use uh, you know to always ask myself, okay, this is there's something that's causing a stress, and um, and uh, and the question is to find out or the goal is to find out where where does the responsibility lies? Can I can, does it lie with me? Do, am I responsible for causing that stress? And is it within my control or outside of my control to address it? So being able to break down the the root cause of the stress and be being able to to decide what I can do about it, I've been, I've been it's been uh, very useful. And I use this also the within control, outside of control, uh, with with clients that I work with, which I found really uh, helps a lot. Yeah, and you know what I think is also helpful about it is that um, as soon as we can figure out what we can control, what we can influence and what we can't at all, um, we're more open to learning. So if we're trying to keep everything under control, we have very rigid thinking. We think we know how things are. We've got it in our hands. Um, Different ways of thinking or different kinds of information will be a threat to our perceived or, you know, our goal of having control over something. So in many ways, it doesn't allow us to evolve um, and to learn and to adapt if we're too tightly trying to hold on to something um, and something particularly that we can't actually control. Um, And it, it ties up our energy in ways that is often not very productive um, because we're kind of spinning our wheels and spinning our wheels trying to uh, influence or control something that isn't going to shift. And yet we could be shifting that energy elsewhere to taking different kinds of approaches. Or in some cases, one of the only things that we can control is our own mindset and our own framing or reframing. Um, So, you know, we talked about these characteristics as kind of a skill set do they relate to each other? Is one more important or the other? And again, I wouldn't say that one's more important than the other, but by talking about a couple of these, you can see how they link to one another. Um, and something like finding that healthy balance around control can then make it more possible to continue to learn from your changing circumstances, from other people or you know other cultures, and adapt as needed. So if I'm uh, if I'm listening to this out there and uh, and I'm sold on on the importance of of resilience, and I want to go on this transformative resilience journey, and maybe you can take the perspective of a leader there, a leader within an organization, because uh, many of our listeners uh, are for themselves leaders in organizations or aspire to become uh, to 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 be leaders in organizations. Can you describe what that journey to transform transformative resilience looks like so that people can can go on a journey for them for themselves? Yeah, I mean there are a couple of well, there actually are a lot of type R's there walking around and um, I keep hearing about more and more of them, which is so encouraging um, and including having some of them step up and say, Hey, I'm a type R. Um, but if you want to talk about the journey, for instance, um, there's somebody who I really have come to admire, um, who, you know, for instance, takes this notion of a healthy relationship to control and had to learn it himself and then take it into work and into a crisis in his startup. Um, so his name is Frederick Hudson, and he's one of the most successful young African-American entrepreneurs. Um, and he used lessons he had learned during a stint in prison um, to focus on what he couldn't control. Um, and you know, so to give you some background, Frederick had been, I believe, in the military. He was discharged with honors. Um, you know, a very upstanding guy, very entrepreneurial, um, and had started a couple of businesses and made a poor choice with one of those businesses that landed him in prison. Um, I think he was only 24 at the time. And as soon as he got to prison, he learned that when you're there, you have no control over much of anything. Um, not when you eat, when you sleep, when you can get in touch with family, 
what have you. Uh, and you're also told this is the end. You're just going to be a loser. Mm-hmm. Um, but he realized quickly that what he could control was who he wanted to become, um, who he was going to be. You know, he know he knew that he had really disappointed some people and hurt them by ending up in this situation. Uh, and so he spent every day of the four years he was in prison making these small decisions and working towards who he wanted to be and focusing on the small things he could control, which was essentially wanting to become a successful businessman and an entrepreneur um, and somebody who made a larger social contribution. So today, Frederick is the CEO and um, founder of a business called Pigeonly, which is an online communications platform. Um, And it essentially keeps uh, prison inmates in contact with their families around the world. Um, They have been supported by Y Combinator. They've, I believe, been hailed as a success by Forbes and others. So in in a traditional sense, they've been very successful, despite Frederick's kind of non-traditional background. Um, But just this past year, they had a crisis come up where um, somebody breached their security and was able to start setting up um, hundreds of fraudulent accounts overseas. And it started to cost them a lot of money because um, in 36 hours, their verification system was making phone calls all over the world repeatedly. So Frederick got wind of this and he had to figure out what to do. And he, like any normal human uh, or leader, his initial instinct was to take as much control back as he could, try and control the behavior of others and shut it down. Um, But he had to step back and remember, okay, what can I control? What can't I? Um, You know, it's probably not the wisest thing just to decide to do away with the international part of the business. Um, So he drew on the support of his team, um, also partners like Skype that had been through security issues and, you know, has a parallel kind of platform. Um, He reframed along with the team and said, okay, well, part of what we can control is our own response and our own way of thinking and the solutions that we come up with. Um, So I don't want to go on too much, but essentially they rebuilt the way that their software um, is used or is structured in the process. It was a real upgrade to their product. Um, Their reputation was increased because um, people heard that they were doing all of these upgrades and making it even more high quality product. But in terms of his leadership in the organization and the culture, What was interesting is that until this point, a lot of the business's success all rested on Frederick's shoulders as the founder um, and CEO. And so, you know, other people were there and were present, but they didn't have a certain level of investment. But by being brought into the heart of this situation and one understanding that it could do away with their jobs if this business became not viable but also being made part of the process of finding a solution, they had a certain sense of ownership. So Frederick was really smart to leverage their support and their input, not just because they had good ideas and different kinds of knowledge to his, but it created a kind of ownership. And now it's led to a different kind of culture where they feel very highly invested in, you know, keeping their eyes open for things that could be a problem Um, the overall success of the business, what have you. So that's just an example of one leader who kind of started with some of these skills. And I talk about the healthy relationship to control with him because he was in such a fantastic environment. But, you know, he's learning to adapt as he goes to um, put his attention to what he can and, and can't control. When he can't control something, he's redirecting his energy Um, So he's drawing on a lot of these skills and he had to build them in himself first and then he's taken it into his leadership and he's taken it into his organization and crises there. But just to take one further leap, one thing that's distinguishing about type bars is that they also make a larger contribution to their community or to the world around them. And that's very much true of Frederick. 
Um, on one hand, having a deep sense of purpose is what gets type R's through difficulties and helps them see beyond the confines of that difficult moment. Um, but they also go on and use what they've learned in difficulty to make a broader contribution. And so that was true with Frederick. Um, his business is a social enterprise um, because it's serving this population of people who is prisoners and their families. It's a very profitable um, business, but he's also helping a certain group of people that when they stay in touch with the outside world and their family members, they're significantly less likely to end up back in prison once they're released. So there's a social impact that he's having as well. Very inspiring story. Frederick Hudson sounds like a, like a, a remarkable uh, human being, being. Thank you for sharing that. We're already moving into the last segment of the, the podcast. Time is running so fast. And uh, <laughs> we're going to end, uh, Ama, with, uh, with three questions that we ask every guest on the podcast and also in the uh, live events that we host um, here in different cities and in, in, over in Germany. So the first question would be, and maybe it's, uh, it's an easier one for you because we talked about skills uh, quite a bit. And um, the question is uh, what, we, what, what you would recommend uh, young people uh, or people earlier in their career uh, to acquire in terms of skills that uh, they should acquire early in their career, which can be ported throughout uh, different moments and different phases of their career? Well, I obviously think that the type R skills are very important to have. Um, we've yeah. talked about we've them. We've talked about them. Uh, so, you know, things that come to mind, um, other things that come to mind for me are, for instance, being able to engage with lots of different kinds of people and to learn from them and be able to operate in different worlds. Um, I think some of that can come down to personality type because that for me is a joy to be able to do. Like I love talking to strangers. Some people cringe at the thought of that. <laughs> um, but it's actually one of the things that has served me most in my years of work in different kinds of organizations with different kinds of leaders. Um, but also I've now worked on five different con uh, continents and in different countries. And so That ability to adapt to different environments and to um, relate to different kinds of people and different kinds of experiences, I think one has enriched my own understanding of the world and my own skills, but it's also allowed me to adapt and to move through a lot of different um, worlds, uh, for the most part successfully, although there have been, to be fair, quite a few failures along the way as well. <laughs> What was your favorite failure? Oh, God. Um, what was my favorite failure? I feel like I've had a lot of failures. Um, <laughs> but no, for instance, you know, uh, early on in my career with international affairs type work, um, I remember going to work in Cambodia with a women's organization, um, working with garment workers uh, in a rapidly changing environment. And I was looking at how those changes were affecting them as workers. And, you know, I had this whole photography project set up um, where we together were going to kind of tell the story about what was happening. And apparently they were really, really into it. And then in the end, it turned out they weren't. Uh, it was part of Cambodian culture to save face and to not say no. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I found myself after several months of being there and, you know, having a specific project I was supposed to be working on that, um, that wasn't where people were, but it was really hard for me to understand that because, of the cultural differences. Um, and so ultimately I had to kind of pivot and, um, just come up with another way that I could engage with them, um, which was telling their stories and did end up, um, turning into a piece of work that I did with Mary Robinson, the, um, former president of Ireland that I then went on to work for next. Um, so it didn't turn out to be a total failure, but at the time it was really, really hard um, and I had to learn quite a lot from both those cultural, cultural interactions. And also like, I just couldn't influence people beyond a certain point. Um, and so I think that's where things like creative thinking and, um, being able to pivot and adapt 
and kind of leverage the support of other people, one, to kind of help soften the blow of your failures, but also help you see in new ways is really important. Mm. Do you have a role model yourself? I do. And interestingly, I've spent a lot of time, at one point, I really looked for mentors. Um, I feel like there have been different people at different times. Uh, My mom has been a role model throughout my lifetime as somebody who has always um, broken down barriers for herself. She has innovated and reinvented herself many times over in her career, often due to difficulties. For instance, the financial crisis I talked about um, some years back while she was building an online stress um, work-life platform. Um, So my mom is, you know, the most consistent role model and also support throughout my life. But um, working for Mary Robinson, the first female president of Ireland, was extraordinary. Um, Although I don't have political ambitions myself, um, and I was working for her after she was in office, just seeing what is possible. um, You know, she had become a senator in Ireland at age 25 when there weren't, uh, for the most part, female senators, let alone young ones. Um, She went on to be the first female president. She totally redefined the role of what president was and how it worked in their system. Um, You know, she tackled issues of major importance from, um, you know, global wars, refugees, uh, economic development, um, you know, climate change. So working with her in many ways, she taught me about leadership. Um, We had a very interesting one-on-one meeting with Uh, Vicente Fox, who at the time was the president of Mexico. And she, you know, really held my hand and taught me about how she approached the meeting in a certain way and why she did and what it means for leadership. So that experience um, was really remarkable for me and broadened my horizons in terms of thinking about what was possible um, for myself in the future, in terms of my level of ambition or the way in which um, I might contribute to larger global conversations. Wow, very cool. Um, the last question that we ask every all of our guests uh, is the uh, how we conclude this, this episode. And uh, I was curious to know what advice you would share with your 14-year-old self. Oh, goodness, probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was 14, I was just uh, had newly arrived at a fantastic school um, where I met some of the people who to this day remain some very close friends, um, one of who is in Berlin, living as a painter. Um, But I had just come out of a really difficult circumstance where I was uh, at a school where I was being bullied a lot. And um, as you could understand, it really shook my confidence and my belief in myself. Um, But having the kind of mom that I did, it was an opportunity for her to teach me about psychology and about why people do things. Um, So at age 14, I was coming out of that. I was on the upside of that and rebuilding my confidence. And Mm. um, I was getting really interested in politics and um, global issues. So I think I would say to my 14 year old self, just know that actually the hurt that I felt from that period of being bullied, in many respects, would become a strength in terms of being um, curious about people's own psychology and why they do things and um, being able to see through the facade that sometimes they present. So you hear about this a lot, for instance, in conflict resolution, where the reason that somebody says they're upset and that they won't budge from an issue often isn't the real reason where there's Mm -hmm. something deeper underlying that you have to get to to then resolve that scenario. Um, So I think, you know, the skill set coming out of that, I would reassure myself that later in life, it would really um, be an asset. And then just also to say that because at age 14, I was um, at a very unique school studying ethics, um, studying politics, and and becoming very interested in issues like um, economic inequality, the environment, um, doing business in a different way. But it was seen as cute and kind of a niche issue and, you know, like, oh, honey, you just go take care of that. And I think I would reassure my 14 year old self that 
years, decades later, these would become the most critical issues about how we work and live and, um, you know, learn to better live on this planet, which has finite resources and many of us on it. Um, and I think those are our key issues today, even though you could be working on a business that has nothing to do with those. Um, thank you so much for your time today. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, the book is called Type R, Transformative Resilience in a Turbulent World. Um, I read it. Um, I have a book lying here in front of me full of notes and uh, and earmarks and underlight um, uh, segments of the book. So I highly recommend it. Where can people find you? Uh, where where do you would like to, to point people to online or, or to check out the book? Sure. Um, so just to say that we have a very simple um, type R kind of quiz or assessment that people can take. Um, the one that's on the website is just for individuals, but we do this work with leaders and organizations as well. So people can find out more about the book and also take that assessment at our website, which is www.type-r-resilience.com. I'm going to repeat it, www.type-r-resilience.com. And I'm Amma Marston, and I'm so pleased that I got to join you today. Thank you so much for your time, Amma. Take care, David. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you like this episode, then why not check out one of the previous episodes of the Role Models podcast? We have had conversations with people like Cindy Gallup, who is a former advertising executive turned entrepreneur and a vocal advocate for more diversity in business. Or maybe Cindy Holland, who is the vice president of original content at Netflix and where she talks about uh, being a leader in a company that she's been with for almost 15 years. Or maybe chef and author Samin Nazrat, who just released a book about how to learn the fundamentals of cooking and where she shares the story about how she just walked up to a restaurant uh, carrying a letter and then uh, left that restaurant with having a job. If you like to support Role Models uh, because you like it, uh, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And then please also post a really quick review about what you think, what you like about the show, and maybe even while you're at it, click on the five-star rating. This really helps the Role Models podcast reach people like you and also helps the stories of our role models reach more people. If you have any feedback for us, reach out on Twitter. We're at Role Models. And if you have any feedback for me, you can reach me also on Twitter by tweeting at David. Thank you for listening. Until next time.